the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is engineering and producing today's program. Well, let's see. This isn't at all where I was going to start. Um, Glad to have you with us today. We're going to be talking with, in fact, I don't have any of my papers. James is running down the hall. Actually, he's walking very slowly uh, to try to grab my um, my show sheet to tell you what's coming up today. Let me see if I can find that online real quick. Okay. No, I can't. Got a couple of guests. I'll tell you about them in just a few moments. So stay with us. Oh, I know one of them is <laughs> so ridiculous is um, Mary Lowe. She is the co-author, along with Stephen Lowe, of Ecologies of Faith in a Digital Age, Spiritual Growth Through Online Education. Now, you may have a hard time connecting those dots, but I promise you this is a fascinating uh, book on how new technology has made it possible to learn online in a way that doesn't deprive you of the connectedness that we appreciate when we're in the same geographical space. So she'll be joining us uh, later this hour. Thank you. Would you also pass that out to the other couple people? Oh, I need a second one for my for my record. Thank, <laughs> thank you, James. A glimpse behind the curtain, James says. Well, taking a look at some of the developing news for uh, today, U.S. Representative uh, Ron DeSantis endorsed, president, endorsed by President Trump won Florida's GOP gubernatorial primary on Tuesday. In November, he'll face uh, Bernie Sanders-backed Tallahassee Mayor Andrew Gillum, who uh, pulled off an upset victory in Florida's Democratic primary. And Republican U.S. Representative Martha McSally and Democrat U.S. Representative Kristen Sinema won Arizona's Senate primaries on Tuesday. We'll battle in November to succeed retiring U.S. Senator Jeff Flake. Justice Department official Bruce Orr was grilled behind closed doors by lawmakers about his ties to the salacious and much discredited Russia Trump dossier. And President Trump reportedly mulled firing Attorney General Jeff Sessions. There's a headline. But uh, the proviso here is this month, as Republican lawmakers have urged Sessions to resist pressure to resign before the midterm elections. Well, CNN is under fire for refusing to retract a report on the infamous Trump Tower meeting, even after Lanny Davis, former Trump attorney Michael Cohen's lawyer, admitted being an anonymous source and recanted the story. And finally, Senator John McCain will lie in state at Arizona's Capitol as family and friends and colleagues begin to say their final farewells. Uh, earlier today. Well, President Trump's favored candidate, uh, GOP Representative Ron DeSantis, who in his first public statement following the victory has plunged himself into a controversy, defeated state agricultural commissioner and uh, Adam Putnam in Florida's Republican gubernatorial primary yesterday after riding the wave of the president's enthusiastic endorsement to victory. Meanwhile, the Bernie Sanders-backed Tallahassee Mayor Andrew Gillum, he pulled off a major upset in defeating a half dozen rivals, including former Representative Gwen Graham in the Democratic primary. The president repeatedly had implored voters to support DeSantis over Putnam, 
Trump offered his congratulations on Twitter. DeSantis and uh, Gillum will face each other in November's general election. And uh, if he triumphs, Gillum would be the state's first black governor. And U.S. Representative Martha McSally and Kristen uh, Sinema of Arizona won Tuesday, uh, Tuesday's U.S. Senate primaries in the state and will face off in November to succeed retiring Republican U.S. Senator Jeff Flake. Their victories assure that uh, Arizonans will elect their f- first female U.S. Senator in November. In the Republican primary, McSally defeated former state uh, Senator Kelly Ward and former Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arpaio. On the Democratic side, Sinema uh, defeated attorney Deidre Abood. McSally is a former Air Force colonel, considered the favorite of the Washington establishment, played up her allegiance to uh, President Trump while competing against two outspoken conservative contenders. Ward, who had lost to the late Senator John McCain in the 2016 primary, and Arpaio, uh, the illegal immigrant opponent pardoned by the president last year after being convicted of criminal contempt of court. While the president, who notably has supported a series of candidates in recent months, stayed away from any Arizona endorsements, but congratulated McSally after her Victory. Meanwhile, Republican Arizona Governor Doug Ducey was being projected to uh, uh, by Fox uh, News, NBC and others to keep his reelection hopes alive by defeating former Arizona Secretary of State Ken Bennett in the Republican primary. Justice Department official Bruce Orr testified to lawmakers on the House Oversight and Judiciary Committees yesterday about his relationship with former British spy Christopher Steele and his ties to the salacious Trump dossier. Well, Orr did not respond to reporters' questions as he arrived for the closed-door meeting or when he left, accompanied by two officials. And while lawmakers told reporters that Orr rather was being cooperative, Representative Daryl Issa said that Orr has a poor memory. It seems that there were contradictions between his testimony and that of others in this case. President Trump discussed possibly firing U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions with his White House aides earlier this month, according to a report. The president's advisors and attorneys persuaded him not to fire Jeff Sessions, while special counsel Robert Mueller's Russian collusion investigation is still ongoing, which may never end. The Washington Post is reporting. Sessions has found support in some Republican lawmakers who, according to the Wall Street Journal, have urged him to resist any pressure to resign and hold on to his job, at least through the November midterm elections. And the president for months has railed against Sessions over his recusal from the Russia investigation. However, Sessions has hung on, occasionally pushing back publicly, most recently last week when the president in a Fox News interview blasted the attorney general for never taking control of the Justice Department. Well, you might recall Sessions responded with a statement vowing that the Justice Department would not be improperly influenced by politics under his watch. When asked in a um, an interview if he would fire Sessions and Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein after the midterms. Trump didn't rule it out. Still, Trump said he wanted to stay uninvolved. Hmm. And CNN is facing heavy criticism for refusing to retract a bombshell story on the infamous 2016 uh, Trump Tower meeting after one of the anonymous sources recanted and admitted he was a source. On Tuesday afternoon, CNN's um, uh, .com published a new report that acknowledged the changing story of Lonnie Davis, the high-powered attorney of the president's longtime fixer turned foe, Michael Cohen. But critics pointed out the network failed to address key issues with its original report. Well, Davis admitted on Monday he was an anonymous source after the Washington Post outed him as the source for its own version of that story. The attorney told BuzzFeed News on Monday 
that he regretted being the anonymous source as well as his subsequent denial. The CNN story, which cited multiple sources, claimed Cohen said President Trump um, knew in advance about the Trump Tower sit-down. I made a mistake, he said, speaking to BuzzFeed. CNN has not responded to multiple requests for comments or for retractions. And earlier today, family, friends and constituents um, gathered at Arizona's Capitol to pay their final respects to Senator John McCain, the first of two days of service services rather in Phoenix before he departs the state. Uh, He represented for some uh, 35 years since the 1980s. A private ceremony will be held um, uh, was held rather this morning in the Arizona State Capitol Museum Rotunda, where uh, McCain will lie in state and uh, will remain there. That ceremony will include remarks from Governor Doug Ducey, former U.S. Senator John Kyle, plus a benediction from Senator Jack Flake. It also marked the first appearance of McCain's family members since the longtime senator died of brain cancer on Saturday at age 81. Later in the afternoon, the Capitol uh, was opened for members of the public who wanted to pay their final respects. McCain will lie in state at the U.S. Capitol on Friday. He'll be celebrated at a national memorial service at Washington National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. on Saturday before he's laid to rest in a private burial at the U.S. Naval Academy Cemetery in Annapolis, Maryland, on Sunday. And on this day in 2017, Hurricane Harvey, which devastated much of the western Gulf Coast, makes a fifth and final landfall over Louisiana. On this day in 2005, Hurricane Katrina makes its second landfall as a Category 3 hurricane, devastating much of the U.S. Gulf Coast from Louisiana to Florida Panhandle. It becomes the worst national disaster in U.S. history, killing more than 1,836, causing more than $115 billion in damage. And on this day in 1967, the final TV episode of The Fugitive, starring David Jansen, it aired... uh, and was watched by some 78 million people. And on this day, way back in 1842, Britain and China signed the Treaty of Nanking, ending the First Opium War. There have been many since then. All right, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. By the way, in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Amy Swearer. She's a legal policy analyst at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. She points out that existing law didn't protect the victims from the Jacksonville shooter. Rather, it left them defenseless. And like so many mass public shootings before him, current gun laws should have been enough to prevent him from possessing firearms. But the gun laws did little a little more than impose barriers for law-abiding citizens who were then left defenseless. We're going to talk about uh, what happened, what might have uh, prevented it from happening, and where we go from here. Well, Representative Duncan Hunter is still leading in a new poll in his uh, push for re-election, even after he was indicted on charges of, of misusing campaign funds for personal purposes. Now, he says this is a gotcha moment that had been taken care of uh, months and months ago. Mr. Hunter, a California Republican, led Democrat um, Amar Kampa Najjar, 47 percent to 39 percent, according to a survey 
uh, even following these uh, charges. Most voters are aware of the charges and a plurality say they believe the uh, indictment was politically motivated. Even many of those planning to vote for Mr. Hunter said they would prefer another Republican but are ready to vote for Mr. Hunter if he's the only choice. Well, under California's election system, known as the jungle primary, the two candidates who get the most votes in the primary face off in the general election, regardless of party. Mr. Hunter, who was the uh, top vote getter in the June primary with Mr. Um Kampa Najjar, the runner-up, and uh, thus his opponent. Well, Mr. Hunter has said that he will defend himself against the charges and will run for re-election, which he now is. There's some question as to whether, if he dropped out, his name can be uh, replaced on the ballot. If he were to drop out, which doesn't seem likely at this point, and no replacement was named, 38% of voters in the poll said they'd still vote for him, compared to 42% of uh, Mr. Kampa Najjar. The other 20% were undecided um, as to what they would do. In another Republican, or rather, if another Republican were able to replace Mr. Hunter on the ballot, that person leads in the polls 51 to 36 over Mr. Kampa Najjar, according to the survey USA uh, poll found. Mr. Hunter and his wife stand accused of using campaign raised cash to take trips or pay for personal items. The House GOP has moved him from his committee assignment while the case is is, uh, pending. But the campaign and the election will move forward. Craig Engel asked the question, or at least makes the statement, um, hey, Michael Cohen, you actually didn't violate that election law. There seems to be some disagreement as to whether or not uh, paying off uh, on behalf of Donald Trump, his client, a woman of ill repute, um, was in fact a violation of law. And he suggests that Cohen, the president's former attorney, agreed to two counts of campaign finance law violations last week. First is that he violated the law against making corporate contributions. And second, that he knowingly violated the law against making excessive personal contributions. He did not need to agree to either of these, Craig Engel is arguing. And I've heard this argument made rather persuasively by others, but not being a lawyer, I'm not sure if... Uh, If this is an accurate assessment, but he goes on to write that the corporate contribution charge goes like this. The National Enquirer was approached by a woman selling a story about Donald Trump. Cohen and the Enquirer discussed it. Cohen agreed to reimburse the paper if it bought it. Uh, The paper did buy it, but Cohen didn't. Well, the Justice Department, in what must be a brand new theory, says Cohen violated the law because he caused the corporation, the National Choir, to make an in-kind contribution to benefit the Trump campaign. Well, putting aside that no campaign money actually changed hands here, and it's hard to put that aside, it is uh, not a violation of campaign finance laws to cause someone else's corporation to spend money. The uh, corporate contribution statute Cohen allegedly violated states that it is unlawful for one, any corporation to make a contribution in connection with a federal election or two, for a person to knowingly accept such a contribution or three, for an officer of the corporation to consent to making a corporate contribution. It says nothing about causing someone to make a contribution. Well, in other words, the statute policies, um, uh, corp- uh, corporations, um, uh, people who accept corporate contributions and corporate officers. Cohen is none of these three. If anyone violated the law here, it would be the National Enquirer and its chairman, David Pecker. They are the ones who actually wrote the check. But did the National Enquirer even violate election law when it wrote the check? 
Well, he argues, no, federal law exempts from the definition of contribution the money that media spends on elections. The Federal Election Commission, in fact, has a proud history of defending the activities of the media, left and right, from regulation and censorship. Media decision-making is protected First Amendment activity, regardless of whether it helps or hurts a candidate. And I'm sure Hillary Clinton is thankful for that. So, Michael, the only way you could have possibly violated the law is if the National Enquirer admits to violate the law too. That, as we all know, will never happen, not because Pecker has immunity, but because he has the Constitution, something for which he has often been grateful for. Well, the second election law charge against Cohen is that he knowingly and willfully made an excessive personal contribution when he paid a third party $130,000 to quiet an embarrassing claim about the candidate, Donald Trump. The words knowing and willing and willful, rather, mean Cohen consciously acted in a manner he knew was a violation of law. That's impossible. Well, he goes on. I talked with several other practitioners of campaign finance law and asked if they thought the payment was a crime. Some said yes. Some said no, which is part of the problem here. And some said they didn't know. Hardly what you would call a clear violation of the law. Well, even the Justice Department knows that law is unclear based on its mistrial in a nearly identical case against former Senator John Edwards. There, the government case withered under a sharp cross-examination. The verdict, the jury could not find any excessive contribution was made. Well, the government doesn't have a better case here, just a weaker defendant or maybe a weaker defense attorney. Cohen need, um, needed trial counsel that would have caught um, these prosecutorial overreaches. What he got instead is a counsel running out of the courthouse yelling, Trump is next, and then retracting at least a part of that, um, that narrative. So, uh, again, it's difficult to know whether or not laws were violated. This is one legal argument that's being made to suggest, no, they were not. As I mentioned, Lanny Davis, who has been engaged in high-stakes crisis management and political lawyering for decades, says he made a mistake. CNN, which relied on Davis, at least in part for a story he now says is false, won't say it made a mistake. And the... the um, uh, story contains a revealing look at the sausage making of investigative reporting and the sometimes murky dance between reporters and their unnamed sources. Davis um, was a pretty straight shooter over the last quarter uh, century, dating back to the Clinton scandal, said that in a telephone a telephone interview uh, that he had made a mistake, an error and regrets it. I should not have uh, be, I should not be talking to reporters on background about something I'm not certain about, Davis said, describing his interactions with CNN reporter. The combination of big stakes and a big mistake is a bad moment for me. If I had to redo uh, to redo it in life, I wouldn't have uh, said anything about the subject at all. And uh, many are waiting for CNN, as the Washington Post and I believe the New York Times have done, uh, to retract their story. Coming up, we're going to talk with Mary Lowe. She's the co-author of Ecologies of Faith in a Digital Age, Spiritual Growth Through Online Education. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, technological innovation has changed virtually everything about human life, including how we teach and learn. Well, many Christian professors and institutions have embraced new technologies, especially online education. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we face the same call to grow in our faith. So how should we think about and approach Christian education in light of new technologies? Is it possible for us to grow spiritually through our digital communities? Well, Steve Lowe and Mary Lowe, longtime proponents of online education, 
trace the motif of spiritual growth through scripture and consider how students and professors alike might foster digital ecologies in which spiritual growth, even transformation, can take place. We're going to be talking about the book, Ecologies of Faith in a Digital Age, Spiritual Growth Through Online Education. Uh, Mary Lowe is Associate Dean for Online Programs and Professor at Rawlings School of Divinity at Liberty University, and she joins us to talk about the book that she and her uh, husband, Dr. Uh, Stephen Lowe, co-authored. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, good evening. How are you? I'm doing just fine. Now, many of us, when we think about online education, we imagine a sterile environment where there's no connection, uh, that you doze off while someone uh, is offering a boring lecture some thousands of miles away, and you're filing your nails when you should be taking notes. We've come a long way from the early days of uh, of online education, if you will. Describe where we started and where things are today in terms of what technology can allow. Yeah, you know, I think we uh, when we, we use the term technology, we often think of a computer or an iPad or an iPhone. But in reality, technology are those things that help us learn. So when you think of maybe the, the tablets of old that that we uh, we got our commandments from, and so through time, uh, even as far back as the 1800s, we had a form of uh, distance education, correspondence education. It's obviously come a long way uh, to today now, where it's digital, it's instantaneous, it's very much now. Uh, you were talking about people yawning and falling asleep. I just taught a class uh, and, and in residence class this morning, and I had several yawners and kids having trouble staying <laughs> awake. So uh, I think that's true no matter the venue that you have education. But I think one of the interesting things about education, online education, and what we see today is a little bit of a, um, a misperception, if you will, of those ideas of what forms community and that what we're seeing in a lot of our online classes is very much a, a thriving body of learners who are interacting with one another in kind of that bi-directional manner. Mm-hmm. They're taking what they're learning in the online classroom and they're applying it into their ministry context, into their local churches, into those parachurch ministries that they are running. And then they're using those same kinds of things that they're, they're learning in those ministry contexts and bring them back to the classroom. So it's been a very rich learning experience. That's um, very much an embodied learning experience that they're bringing their entire their minds, their emotions, their you know their fingers, and and all of their personhood to that online classroom to create a very rich and diverse learning ecology and learning experience. I want to talk about the ecology in just a moment. But what does technology permit? Just on a raw basis uh, in in terms of being able to communicate with one another. Are people looking at their small computer screens? Are they in a common space? How does this kind of um, uh, online education typically take place today? And how does technology make it more personable, if you will, uh, than we've seen in the past? Yeah, I think what we're seeing today is a lot more of a blurring of the lines. Uh, One author wrote that uh, kids are actually addicted to each other. And they're using their devices to manifest that connection and that addiction, if you will, that they have to one another. A lot of people are using their devices to connect to one another. So I I really don't think it's as much of a disconnecting device Mm -hmm. as it is a tool for us to connect with one another around the world. Uh, It's it's taking education to places where it previously wouldn't have been able to get into. It's bringing those faraway places to us. And so I think what technology does is it really serves as a tool 
um, good teachers don't allow it to replace good teaching. They use it to sort of supplement the teaching experience. But I think what we want to see technology continue to do is to bring people together into those communities to form those opportunities to connect and, and have those interactions with one another. So we don't see technology as a delimiting experience. In fact, we see it as something that adds to the online environment. And what we're seeing in terms of those devices is that it's just one other way for them to connect with one another. They are, especially, I think, the millennials, they, they understand connections. It's almost an innate sense. They know how to connect with one another. And so those are the kinds of opportunities that we allow uh, technology to continue to enhance and to serve and to be part of the overall experience. And I think it's embedded in all of life. I think some of the critics of online education, for example, suggest that we sort of step away from real life and we enter this virtual reality, this virtual world, and, and conduct business there. But I think we've got to see it more of an ecology where it permeates all of life, that it's part of everything that we do, and the more that we can see the paradigm as an integrated, uh, embedded form of connecting and interacting, I think we can develop a healthier view of what technology does for education. Well, again, the title of the book is Ecologies of Faith in a Digital Age, and you begin in the first part of the book, A Biblical Theology of Ecology. Uh, let's begin there, and let's, let's talk about what the scriptures have to say uh, about ecology that can help us understand how we connect in ways that perhaps we haven't thought of. Yeah, I think if you look at, at really all of Scripture, the Old and New Testament, it, that what it seems to provide for us is uh, sort of an ecological metaphor or even a hermeneutic of the way that we come at Scripture. When you look at, for example, uh, when Jesus talks about how we grow, you know, he compares it to a, a mustard seed, when he's also talking about what can we do for spiritual growth, go look at how the lilies grow, what are they doing? Are they toiling and spinning? Uh, are they in a, in a group, in a cluster of other lilies? Uh, all throughout the Old Testament, we look at examples of the vineyard and, and a lot of agricultural metaphors to describe the process of growth. So I think that's where we come at the issue of, of a theology, of ecology, if you will, and that the Bible is replete with uh, examples and ways for us to understand that uh, the way we grow spiritually is much the same that we see principles of growth in nature, and that things in nature don't grow in isolation. They grow because they are connected to other elements. Uh, I tried to grow a tomato plant in the shade. That didn't work out so well uh, because it needs you know, good light. It needs good soil. It needs good water. That's how things uh, grow optimally. And similarly, we grow optimally when we are connected with others, when we are connected to one another in the body. So we see even in Paul's language of, of the body of Christ, it's very much he uses the physical body to describe those dynamics of how we grow and connect and are very much integrated with one another. So that's where we develop this whole idea of ecology is we first start with a biblical hermeneutic of how does that work? How does God design principles of growth? Then how do we take that and apply it to our own whole person elements of growth, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, socially, and in all of those dimensions of growth and development. 
Well, the second part of your group is on spiritual formation through digital ecologies. The sort of organic description that you gave a moment ago about the theology, theology of ecology and how we see throughout Scripture these references that make that help us to understand how things grow and form together in, in community and in uh, in certain environments. Uh, establishing that same principle, that same capacity in the digital world. Uh, is it much more challenging, or is it just a matter of our understanding how even though we are connected digitally, we can experience that same sort of organic growth together? Yeah, I think, again, you go back to the idea that that blurring of the lines, mm-hmm. that it's not an either-or paradigm. I think what we try and understand, and, and for the purpose of this book, it is talking about technology and digital connections. But what we also see are that the interactions and connections that we have with one another in the body and our in the churches and in those ministry contexts and in those physically embodied contexts where we interact with one another face to face. So we use those principles of of growing and connecting one with one another through an ecological paradigm to paradigm to describe both what happens online as well as offline. And that those contexts we're very much embedded in multiple contexts. So we're part of a family. We're all part of a maybe a church or a ministry or a neighborhood or a school. We're all part of these contexts. And online education is simply another one of those contexts. And that we go in and out of those, uh, those sort of concentric circles of context when we interact with one another. And that's the idea is that we're constantly interacting with one another, but we don't leave those relationships when we come to the online classroom. We bring those relationships with us to that online classroom. And then the relationships that we form in the online classroom with other students, the professor, you know, all of those contexts and social networks, we take back to those ministry opportunities and ways of interacting with those family dynamics. Now, the word interaction is one that I, I want to explore just a little bit. When you're in the context of a digital um, uh, education system, uh, how how easy is it today uh, for there to be interaction among students with the, uh, the the professor or the teacher, uh, how does that flow in the context of education? Yeah, I think because of technology and the way that it's improved, I think it's gotten a lot better. I think that there were times when it it was a struggle and it was rough, uh, but I think what we see now are just uh, multiple options for students to connect either through you know FaceTime or WebEx or all of those virtual platforms where people can connect you know in real time live, um, but also the way in which those connections are fostered, the way in which those interconnections and the way that we interact with one another are fostered. And I think that's one of the things that we do at Liberty University is we really focus on that teacher student dynamic, where we don't take it for granted. We we make it very intentional. Uh, we connect with one another in an intentional way. And so it can be done through any number of means. Our faculty call students. Uh, students come by the office, people who live locally. I had a student actually drive down from Washington, D.C. to meet with me personally. Um, and so I think it's it's become a lot easier. and It's almost seamless. And, and I think a lot of people are surprised at just the seamlessness of it that it's very much a part of, of life and it's very much a part of you're not just leaving one context and having to get into another. So our, our faculty and our students do a great job of connecting with one another. Uh, we have some, in some classes, there are uh, chat rooms that they establish so that they can connect and ask teachers a question about it. But I think, interestingly, a lot of the learning that takes place is actually about sort of real-life issues, students that are struggling with 
you know, a child is in the hospital, a parent is aging and, and having to deal with aging issues. And they're connecting with faculty about those kinds of things. And I think in the process of that, they understand that technology simply helps in that process of getting advice, you know, talking to somebody, uh, sharing real life experiences. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking about the book, Ecologies of Faith in a Digital Age, Spiritual Growth Through Online Education. My guest is um, uh, Dr. Mary Lowe. She is an Associate Dean of Online Programs and Professor at Rawlings School of Divinity at Liberty University. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. About 10 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Mary Lowe. She is Associate Dean for Online Programs and Professor at Rawlings School of Divinity at Liberty University. We're talking about how we should think about and approach Christian education in light of new technologies. And uh, she and her husband have been engaged in that kind of work for uh, for some time. Um, is this the, the, the wave of the future? Will there always be brick-and-mortar universities where students leave their homes and congregate for education's sake, or do you see uh, this um, uh, digital education as the wave of the future or just expanding uh, the numbers of people who can access education uh, because of proximity? Yeah, I think it will uh, just continue to expand. I think we're always going to have the brick and mortar. I think that there is something valuable in that. Uh, I think there's something uh, healthy about having those opportunities. But I think, as you just said, online education is going to going to continue to grow, and it's going to just simply expand our options and continue to, if you will, level the playing field for people who aren't able to relocate to a brick and mortar. Uh, They don't lose out. Uh, They get the same quality of education that they would uh, if they drove to another institution. So I think it's just going to expand the way that we do education. We're going to see things done differently. I think it's going to continue to improve uh, but I think we're going to have both forms of education with us for a long time to come. And I think one of the benefits that you you write about and we're, we're discussing is the, the opportunity for community, even in that kind of an education setting. I think most people think about uh, digital education as being isolated and therefore you, you lose out on so many of the other side benefits of being in community and proximity to other students. But what you're describing is an opportunity to experience that in ways that are different, but still valuable. Yeah, and I think, you know, sometimes people use the term equality. Uh, it's not equal. Uh, it certainly is equivalent or comparable. And so it gives us the same kinds of learning uh, outcomes, uh, but we're going to do it differently. And people are going to learn differently. We have different learning styles. Some people like that interaction of being in a, in a live classroom. Others like that online live classroom. And I think that the there's sort of this idea that, you know, a, a colleague of mine once talked about online learning. Uh, comparing it to to being alone in the basement. But that simply isn't the reality. That simply is not what we're saying. And it it isn't the reality of of thousands of our students who have gone through uh, our programs. I think that they they would talk about something completely differently. And in fact, I think a lot of folks talk about this inherent community that they find in the the residential classroom. But again, I'm not so sure that that always happens. Mm -hmm. I remember sitting in the back of the classroom uh, one time and uh, looking across the classroom and, and a lot of students had their laptops open. One was checking their their bank account. <laughs> Somebody was surfing uh, Dollywood. Uh, students were there physically next to one another. 
but I don't know that community was really happening. You know, as soon as class is over, they head for their cars and they're out of there. But what we see online is very rich interaction, very deep engagement with one another. Uh, they're willing to really think, I think, more deeply and engage with one another through that venue. So, you know, I don't know that one is better than the other. Uh, they are, maybe I would compare it to apples and oranges. It's both fruit, uh, but mm-hmm. there are different kinds of fruit. And so you're going to get different kinds of experiences, both of which are very good. Are there financial incentives? Is it less expensive for someone who might not be able to afford to relocate to a college or university? Do you find that that is one motivating factor for some students choosing an online education? Yeah, I think because you don't have to relocate, you don't have to maybe an adult older adult student is going to have to live off campus and you know pay for you know typical housing kinds of things. So I think in some respects it can be cheaper. Uh, the cost is certainly more uh, flexible in terms of some of the things that you can do online that you can't do residentially. But what I'm beginning to see is that while cost will always be a factor, more and more students are really gravitating to the idea of that community, that ability to connect with one another, that they don't necessarily get that often in a classroom because, as I said, a lot of students are sort of out of there as soon as the bell rings. But in an online classroom, they really have opportunities to connect. And I'm beginning to see a little bit of a a trend in this direction, that they're preferring online in the sense that it allows them to connect with more people in more places than maybe you would at a, a residential classroom. But, yeah, we are still seeing some cuffs cost differentials, and people preferring online for that factor. In the third part of your book, um, titled Ecologies of Faith in a Digital Age, you write about uh, the ecological connections to Christ and community. And again, as we think about online education, we wonder if, uh, if the student is losing something in the process. But you write about ecological connection to Christ. Um, how does that, how does online uh, digital education, how does that facilitate a deeper relationship with Christ, again, when you're not in the proximity that, that traditionally has been the case, but where, but where you are focused on um, that priority? Yeah, I think we use that bi-directional language to talk about our connections with one another and our connections with Christ, and both influence the other. So our relationship with Christ is, is why we can love one another. And our love for one another is a way in which we demonstrate our love for Jesus. And so it's that bi-directional connection that we have with each of those that helps continue to foster and mature the, the developing Christian. And so we get that in an online classroom. We get that in a residential classroom. Uh, I don't think you lose out on, on either one. But those, I think that's where we see the growth and development of the uh, spiritual dimension of the person is that interaction with one another. It's the social mm-hmm. dimension that really contributes to growth and development as a Christian in our relationship with Christ. And, you know, I think we grow best as Christians when we are connected uh, with one another. Uh, we see that in the social sciences, we see that in the physical sciences literature, and we see that obviously in scripture, we know that uh, it's important to have those that social a connection, those social networks, if we want to continue growing and maturing as Christians. This is a fascinating book, and I, I know that our conversation only reflects just sort of scratching the surface of it. But to whom would you say this is, is uh, written? To uh, the student who is looking for an education experience, to the educator who may question whether or not they can effectively teach students in a digital context, 
uh, or in general, just helping to broaden our understanding of the possibilities of the digital age in communicating biblical truth and establishing relationships, even though there's uh, the, you don't have the same physical proximity, you do have a connection um, that we need to fully understand and explore. To whom would you say this book is best suited? I would say yes to all of us. <laughs> I would too. <laughs> to everyone. Uh, yeah, and I think that's one. It, it, you know, it's interesting. I was walking through the bookstore and I saw the book, and it was talking about you know through online spiritual growth through online education. And while that's true, and I think for the the teacher who is engaging students online, it's very much true. But I want the folks in the church pews who are sitting to, with someone in that pew. I want the parents of of, of the millennials in their homes to understand that this book is really for everybody. Mm-hmm. The, I think the bigger picture is because of our connections with one another, we've got to understand that we are connected to one another. We influence one another. And it's through those connections that we grow spiritually. And so whether that's online or whether that's offline, whether that's in the church or in the classroom, wherever we find those connections, I think that's where we begin to experience true growth and transformation. That's ultimately our goal is to be transformed into the fullness of Christ. And so we get that when we interact with one another. And that's what we want our readers to understand, that this book is is helping them understand how do I connect with one another? Mm -hmm. How do I grow spiritually? Uh, How do I engage with other people? Uh, You can do that online. You can do that in person. Uh, so it's not an either-or prospect. It's a, it's all of the above. Uh, so I think a lot of people could benefit from the content of it. Absolutely. And I'm excited about the the prospects of what's possible, given the uh, technologies that we now enjoy. Dr. Lowe, thank you so much for talking with me today. You're welcome. Really Glad appreciate it. Again, the book is titled Ecologies of Faith in a Digital Age, Spiritual Growth Through Online Education. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. And if you happen to be a president, a, a parent rather, and you are somewhat skeptical about your son or daughter who's pursuing education digitally, this might be a good book for you to read to better understand what's possible today and how people are uh, connecting and growing together. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, starting this hour better than we started the first. James Blend is engineering and producing today's program. Can I just give you a little bit of a glimpse into what happened? Okay, I was late coming into the studio because I decided at the very last minute I wanted popcorn. It's a bad idea to eat popcorn right before going on the air. In fact, I brought the bowl in here with me. And you know those hulls that uh, sometimes, well, you can get the rest of the picture. So it wasn't a great start, first hour of today's program. But to this second hour, it's going to be stellar, starting after this part. Anyway, James Blind is engineering and producing today's program. And uh, we're going to be talking with Amy Swearer. She's a legal policy analyst at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Um, we're going to talk about the event in Jacksonville, the shooter killed two and, uh, and himself, um, leaving uh, and the, the laws there that should have been sufficient to prevent this event from happening were insufficient. We'll talk about what happened, what should have happened and what might uh, work in the future. So that's coming up in, later this hour. A White House uh, counsel Don McGahn plans to leave the Trump administration after the upcoming confirmation vote for Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh, the president announced today. White House counsel Don uh, McCann will be leaving his position in the fall shortly after the confirmation, hopefully of Judge Brett Kavanaugh to the, the United States Supreme Court. The president tweeted, I've worked with Don for a long time and truly appreciate his service, end quote. White House counsel Don McGahn will be uh, leaving his position. Well, 
well, I'm reading the same thing three times. Well, McGahn's departure has been expected. Um, it was reported earlier this summer that he had expressed a desire to leave the White House and he could uh, uh, be replaced by former George W. Bush aide Emmett Flood. But the announcement caught at least one senior Republican by surprise. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley urged the president to keep his White House uh, counsel on board. I hope it's not true McCann is leaving the White House counsel. Uh, you, can't, uh, you can't let that happen, Grassley said. Well, you can't prevent someone who's decided I'm moving on from doing that. Well, the announcement of his departure comes uh, with revelations that he extensively cooperated with special counsel Robert Mueller's team. Uh, probing the Russia attempt to interfere with the 2016 election. The president said he approved of McCann's cooperation and his legal team has used the revelation that investigators spent more than 30 hours with McCann to uh, argue it's time to wrap up the probe. Well, it, uh, f- as uh, first reported by the New York Times, McCann's discussions with Mueller's team covered moments surrounding the president's decision to fire former FBI Director James Comey and his reported preference that Attorney General Jeff Sessions oversee the investigation. Sessions ultimately he recused himself, and you know the rest of that story. Uh, but the key here, Don McCann will be moving on sometime after the confirmation, assuming that happens, of um, Judge Kavanaugh. Well, efforts to elect the president by popular vote has made uh, mixed uh, has had rather mixed popularity this year as uh, Arizona and Maine both failed to gather the required number of signatures to appear on their November ballots. Well, still, after the Connecticut legislature voted in May to join the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, the plan is just 98 electoral college votes shy of becoming a reality. Well, under the compact, states that join agree to award their electors to the presidential candidate who wins the nationwide popular vote, even if the candidate loses that state. Advocates say this plan would uh, keep the Electoral College in place, reflect the national popular vote, and not require amending the Constitution. Otherwise, uh, in other words, um, the difficult challenge of amending the Constitution and making the persuasive case going through that process would not be necessary. Well, the compact, which has 11 blue states and the District of Columbia on board, would become effectively uh, effective rally only after gaining enough states to equal 270 votes or a majority of the Electoral College, the same number required to elect a president. Well, this almost certainly won't happen by 2020. A retired lawyer and author most recently of the Indispensable Electoral College, How the Founders' Plan Saves Our Country from Mob Rule, which apparently at least 11 blue states are perfectly happy with, uh, the prospect of anyway. The 2016 election was good and bad for this movement, Ross uh, told the Daily Signal. It was good in that it incited an emotional anti-Trump reaction in support of the popular vote. It was bad, uh, a bad thing uh, for this movement because flyover states had a, a demonstration of why they should like the Electoral College. Well, the founders negotiated the Electoral College as a compromise between large and small states, noting that um, Hillary Clinton's popular vote victory over Donald Trump resulted almost entirely from California and New York. And do we want California and New York and maybe a couple others thrown in to make uh, decisions about virtually all the um, future executive uh, elections moving forward? Well, states that feel ignored because of the Electoral College is subject to change. Ross uh, points out that the pendulum swings back and forth on what is a battleground state. In the 1980s, Reagan started out with a lock on California and Texas. People used to wonder if Democrats would ever overcome that. What's a safe state and a swing state? changes. Well, the compact has attracted a total of 172 electoral votes from California, Connecticut, the District of Columbia, Hawaii, Illinois, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, Rhode Island, Virginia, 
or rather Vermont and Washington. Maryland was the first to enter the compact uh, clear back in 2007, so it has uh, taken 11 years for the project to reach this point. The proposed compact is uh, passed 36 legislative chambers in 23 states. Only on five occasions has a president won the Electoral College while losing the popular vote. John Quincy Adams in 1824, Rutherford B. Hayes in 1876, Benjamin Harrison in 1888, George W. Bush in 2000, Donald Trump in 2016. Well, some Republican supporters of the compact point out that Trump repeatedly has backed moving to a popular vote system, despite losing the popular vote to the Democrats nominee Clinton. I believe Donald Trump would have won a popular vote election if he had run a popular vote campaign. A former Republican member of the California Senate told the the Daily Signal. Haynes, also a former uh, chairman of the Conservative American Legislative Exchange Council, is now a national spokesperson for the National Popular Vote, Inc., the group promoting the idea to states. He argues that conservatives in California would be motivated to vote under a unpopular or or rather under a popular vote system, arguing many don't feel their votes um, count or that they barely count with the current winner take all electoral system, pointing out that the Electoral College does doesn't protect small states. It's not um, uh, learned people discussing who should be president. That's all horse manure, he says. What it's uh, good for is making sure Congress doesn't run elections. The Electoral College gives that exclusive power to the states. My goal is to look for a way for conservative voices in California to matter. This sets up a way to protect the Electoral College and make uh, make sure every voice in every state counts. Well, whether or not that would be the outcome I think is a big question mark. But some states can join the compact through an act of the legislature and the governor's signature. In lieu of legislative support, residents in some states have pushed for a ballot initiative. The Republican-controlled Arizona House um, had approved joining the compact in 2015, but it failed in the Senate. So a group of called Arizona Popular Vote began a ballot initiative in December of 2016. Uh, it failed to gather the required signatures, 150,642, by the 5th of July deadline to put the question on the ballot in 2018, according, according to Ballotopia that monitors elections. A retired resident of uh, Arizona was among opponents. Speaking in every Republican legislative district, the Republican women's clubs, other grassroots group presenting a slideshow about the problems with the compact. Um, And uh, again, this process moving forward to reach that 270 vote participation um, from some uh, rates, uh, some red states will be necessary. So it'll be interesting to see what happens moving forward. Well, thousands of students in Washington public schools aren't attending school this week because of ongoing labor negotiations. Seven southwest Washington districts, Battleground, Evergreen, Hawkinson, uh, Longview, Richfield, Vancouver, Washougal, they're scheduled to start their school this week, Tuesday or Wednesday. All seven districts canceled classes because the uh, the strike before the first day of school. Classes in the Camas School District don't start until the 4th. Teachers have voted to strike if uh, salary negotiations aren't settled by the first day of classes there. In Battleground, the public schools announced on Tuesday afternoon that classes would be canceled Wednesday and Thursday. The first day of school was supposed to be Wednesday. Um, They they have lost two days uh, so far. And in Camas, teachers have voted to a strike if salary negotiations aren't settled by the first day of class. Classes there uh, don't start until the 4th of September. 
Evergreen Public Schools announced on Wednesday morning that classes would be canceled on Thursday. The first day of school was supposed to be Tuesday. They've lost three days so far. Hawkinson School District announced Tuesday afternoon that classes would be canceled both Thursday, or rather Wednesday and Thursday. The first day of school was supposed to be Wednesday. They've lost two days so far. Longview Public Schools announced Tuesday morning that classes would be canceled on Wednesday. The first day of school was supposed to be Wednesday, and they've lost a day. Richfield School District announced on Tuesday afternoon that classes would be canceled there on Wednesday. The first day was supposed to be on Wednesday. Um, The number of days lost so far, one, we'll keep counting. And Vancouver Public Schools announced on Tuesday afternoon that classes would be canceled there. The first day of school was supposed to be today. They've lost one school day so far. And finally, Washougal School District announced on Tuesday afternoon that classes would be canceled, well, today. The first day of school was supposed to be Tuesday. They've lost two school days so far. So why are they striking now, and uh, why are they asking for uh, large increases? Well, according to a spokesperson with the Washington Education Association, it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to ask for a big pay increase and retrain, uh, retain qualified teachers after years of underfunding by the state. It all started with the uh, McCleary court decision in 2012 that found Washington wasn't doing enough to fund education. Well, since then, the state legislature has approved billions of dollars in uh, in school funding, including $2 billion that would go directly to teacher salaries. The funding for each school district was being negotiated on a local level, and the Washington Education Association says, They have negotiated salary increases in more than 30 districts. Um, Some cases, the negotiation or their final offer wasn't uh, made known until the very last minute. The Washington Education Association has published an interactive map showing districts where unions have reached agreements. You can find that online. But up uh, up to this point, you have uh, several schools that have been closed. And as I mentioned, Camas will very likely be added to that list if the negotiations don't produce an agreement in the next day or two. All right, 17 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. 22 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with Amy Swearer. She's a legal policy analyst at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We're going to talk about the shooter in Jacksonville, what the what laws were in place, what might have uh, prevented him from uh, killing two and wounding 10 others before ending his own life. That's coming up in our next segment. Well, yesterday during the program, um, James signaled for me to come into this into his uh, engineer's booth to see something on his screen. And there was in the uh, uh, Puget Sound a large ball that reminded me of World War II movies I used to watch years ago that had the sort of spikes on it. And it was, in fact, a um, a mine, a mine. Yeah, a floating mine. Now, how did you stumble on this thing? Um, I didn't stumble on it. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. Um, but uh <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, um, the the the, the, uh, the various news channels that I uh, follow during the course of the show uh, popped up. I think actually it was on my iPhone. It was a little notification from one of the local news um, agencies. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was a dated military mine, and it looks just like what you would imagine a floating mine to look like. Um, was found floating for hours in Washington's Puget Sound between Brownsville Marina and uh, Brainbridge Island. Um, Bainbridge Island, rather, 
Uh, the Navy said in a statement the object was reported to about 2 p.m. and an inspection showed the mine had decades of marine growth on it. Officials said they detonated the mine at about 8.04. So, I mean, they literally had to explode it. That's what detonation, of course, means. The detonation didn't create a secondary explosion, which indicated the device was inert, the Navy said in a statement. Its origin remains un, uh, undetermined. The Navy will continue to investigate. But it's, uh, it was rather interesting to watch. There was video available. The s- discovery of the device prompted the Coast Guard to set up a 1500 Uh, yard safety zone before the Navy inspected the device and uh, towed it out to a safe area for detonation. And I remember when I came into your studio, James, and saw a couple of guys, um, I guess they were Navy SEALs, (laughs) I don't know, who were kind of poking around at the thing. That seemed a little bit uh, scary to me, but I suppose they had to approach it in order to ultimately determine what to do with it. I think my comment at the time was uh, that you know, this is, seems like a really bad episode of Micro's Dirty Jobs, where you, you see a job that you absolutely, under no circumstance, want. Uh, you know, thankful that they're able to do it. But as soon as I saw them come into the picture, I'm like, okay, I'm just nervous watching this yeah. at this point. Yeah. I wouldn't want that job. No. Anyway, very, very interesting. Well, the health advisory has been issued because of high levels of fecal bacteria in ocean waters at Cannon Beach. The Oregon Health Authority says people should avoid any direct contact with the water. So if you're planning in these final few days uh, leading up to the holiday to make your way to Cannon Beach, stay out of the water, not just the ocean, but the waterways that feed into it. While this advisory, they say, is in effect at Cannon Beach, visitors should avoid wading in nearby creeks, pools of water on the beach, or in uh, discolored water and stay clear of water runoff flowing into the ocean. Now, one wonders the source of all of this, but I'll just leave that to your imagination. The statement didn't give a reason for why the bacteria level had increased, but said, that increased pathogen and fecal bacteria levels in ocean waters can come from both shores and inland sources, such as stormwater runoff, sewer overflows, failing septic systems, and animal waste from livestock, pets, and wildlife. The thing that was uh, fascinating to me is we live in an area where uh, we're told that this is a problem. I mean, who checks that? The fact that someone checks that to inform the public is pretty amazing to me. If there's a danger that we would never in a million years even think to contemplate, um, which is kind of redundant, uh, they they have uh, people who are in place that are checking those things. Not always, but it's. I found that fascinating. Increased levels of fecal bacteria can cause diarrhea, stomach cramps, skin rashes, upper respiratory infections, and other illness. Children and older people are more vulnerable, according to OHS or OHA. Uh, health advisories for Agate Beach, Nye Beach, Harris Beach have also been issued. So, If you're planning on making your way to the coast, namely Cannon Beach, you can look, but do not enter. Well, a New Mexico judge dismissed all charges against three suspected, um, uh, three suspects rather, tied to a compound where alleged Muslim extremists reportedly trained children to be school shooters. District Judge Emilio Chavez on Wednesday dismissed charges against three of the five defendants, ruling that authorities violated the state's 10-day rule. So it was on a technicality. Child abuse charges against Lucas Morton, um, Subhana Wahaj, and Hujra Wahaj uh, were dropped because prosecutors missed the 10-day limit for an evidentiary hearing to establish probable cause. Well, the charges against fellow defendants um, remained. The suspects are accused of holding nearly a dozen children at the compound. The remains of a 12th child 
uh, were found on the compound, the son of its leader. Well, the suspects were arrested by authorities after an early August raid following a month-long search investigating the disappearance of this young boy, a three-year-old, with severe medical issues who went missing uh, from Georgia in December. Well, days later, a child's remains were found on the property. Well, the founder was alleged uh, allegedly training children to commit School shootings, according to prosecutors who later alleged that the juveniles were taught how to use firearms as well as tactical techniques in order to kill teachers, law enforcement and other institutions they found corrupt. Uh, The boy's father, um, the leader of the group um, uh, and uh, Lavelle, another of the um, attendees, apparently were hit with additional charges on Friday, adding abuse of a child resulting in death of a child, conspiracy to commit abuse of a child. Uh, It's not clear what happened to the children they removed from the compound. The judge said it was a very difficult decision to drop the charges, but the rule left him no option. Prosecutors could still seek charges for the three by asking a grand jury to indict them, but offered no immediate indication as to how they would go about that. Again, the other children that were removed from the compound, it's not clear what uh, what their disposition will be. Well, the recent arrest of two Iranian agents alleged to have been running spy operations in U.S. soil is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the Islamic Republic's efforts to conduct intelligence operations in America that could result in a terrorist attack. That's according to a leading lawmaker and U.S. officials who spoke to the Washington Free Beacon about the matter. Following the arrest of two Iranian individuals charged with spying on Jewish and Israeli facilities in the California area, Representative Peter Roskam, a Republican out of Illinois, told the Free Beacon it's likely that Iran has stationed multiple regime-tied agents in the United States to conduct intelligence operations. And while the arrest of the two was met with shock in the press, uh, Roskam said that uh, he was not surprised by the arrests, which have unearthed concrete evidence of the Islamic Republic's efforts to foment discord across the globe, including on American soil. This is the tip of the iceberg, he said in an interview. This is not a surprise, and this is the result of the Iran regime getting financial support from the Obama administration in the Iran deal. Well, Iran has been emboldened by the lack of international repercussions on its malevolent behavior and may have increased its intelligence operations in America in the years since the landmark nuclear deal, he said, that uh, being somewhat speculative. However, there was another story that uh, pointed out that more Iranians are paying big money to buy passports in neighboring countries through bribery and fraudulent information in a bid to evade U.S. sanctions and the Trump administration's travel ban on Iran and six other nations. Multiple sources are Uh, are saying Uh, the Iranians are getting passports from a number of nations, sources said, but Iran's influence with some elements of the Iraqi government is now so prominent. The issuing of passports through payoffs and corruptions there has become a growing concern. Iraqi and other sources uh, have said it means that Iranians aren't then um, flagged as being from a country barred by the United States. One Iraqi insider said mostly it has uh, been used by business people and merchants wanting to get around the economic sanctions and continue doing business in the West. But it certainly does um, set off some alarms. 31 minutes after 5 o'clock. Up next, we'll talk with Amy Swearer, legal policy analyst at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest, writing for the Daily Signal, points out that this past weekend, a competitor at a video game competition in Jacksonville, Florida, 
opened fire, allegedly, on fellow gamers, killing two and wounding 10 before taking his own life. She writes that it appears that, like so many mass public shooters before him, current gun laws should have been enough to prevent him from possessing firearms. And once again, the gun laws did little more than uh, uh, impose barriers for law-abiding citizens who were then left defenseless. Well, joining us to talk about uh, the event and what uh, should have been done, what can be done, and how we might interpret these events, Amy Schwer is a legal policy analyst at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Georgina, it's always a pleasure to join you. Well, it's uh, it's difficult to talk about another incident like this one, but I think it's important that we look at it uh, from a, 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 a the aspect of trying to determine what happened, what uh, didn't happen, and what might uh, prevent this sort of an event in the future. So let's begin at the beginning. It's an event where uh, apparently there wasn't much security present, uh, and a shooter, however, was able to walk in and kill two, including himself, ultimately, and wound 10 others. What happened? Well, so a, a lot of things happened, uh, including he was you know, able to possess through legal channels uh, two handguns that were purchased in Maryland from federally licensed firearm dealers. Uh, He was able to, despite not having a concealed carry permit, transfer those uh, across state lines to Florida, where he clearly concealed them on his person to bring them into this this video game uh, competition, uh, which was taking place in uh, Jacksonville Landing, which clearly has stated as its policy that weapons are not allowed regardless of whether or not they're legally possessed you know, otherwise by law-abiding citizens. Um, and, and despite all of that, he clearly ignored those laws and those rules, and, and he brought those handguns in. Uh, it doesn't appear that there was armed security on the premises. And it's still kind of unclear the timeline of what happened and what initiated the shooting, uh, though some other competitors have said he may have been upset that he uh, either lost or was disqualified from the tournament. Uh, But what we do know is that at some point he took at least one of those handguns and and began shooting at other competitors. Mm. Now, we know that he has a history of mental and uh, behavioral problems. Uh, that he was uh, committed for a period of time, this was involuntarily committed, and that it seems that he should not have been eligible unless his uh, record was somehow scrubbed. He should not have been eligible eligible to possess a firearm, and yet he was able to lawfully do so, uh, assuming that he went through the, the process that's required by federal law. How was that possible? Well, we do know that there has been uh, a pretty serious problem in the past of of states having not submitted uh, pertinent mental health records of of people with disqualifying mental health histories to the NICS background check, um, and that there are, frankly, millions of of records missing. So it could be the case that his records uh, simply were never forwarded to the NICS system. Um, Though at that point, you still have to wonder if if Maryland was doing its own sort of internal checks, uh, which this individual would have had to go through in order to obtain a handgun license, which is necessary even prior to purchase in the state of Maryland, uh, how that was missed even in in internal state records. And so there's just a lot of of questions that that still have to be answered, whether his records were sealed because he was a minor um, and he hadn't had anything disqualifying happen when he was an adult, uh, whether 
uh, th those records were just not forwarded, uh, whether you know something else happened and he went through the, the process under state law to have his rights restored. Uh, we just don't know enough at this time, uh, but clearly there were enough red flags uh, that he should have been prohibited by state and federal law. You write that it's becoming increasingly clear that this shooting did not owe to a failure of laws on the books, but a failure to enforce existing laws. What did you mean by that? Yeah, well, as you mentioned, it, it seems rather clear that this individual had a disqualifying mental health history, uh, that that should have been reported, that these red flags should have been made clear to uh, both the state when he was applying for the permit and to the store when he went through the NICS background check, uh, and that for whatever reason, uh, he was still able to, despite the law, obtain those guns through legal channels. And then on top of that, uh, you have the failure to enforce, as is often the case, gun-free zones and to, to enforce laws against you know, concealed carry for individuals who don't have concealed carry permits. These are all laws that we have in place that uh, unfortunately seem to do more to disarm law-abiding citizens than to actually take away opportunities for individuals bent on violent behavior from committing those violent acts. Now, this was a gun-free zone, and apparently uh, in this gun-free zone, there was not um, security, or at least insufficient security. It took uh, something like 16 seconds for two people to be killed, 10 to be uh, wounded, uh, and those who were present at the tournament were left essentially defenseless. Yeah, that, that's right. And I think it's important to note uh, that you know, even if there had been armed security there, that armed security, given the short period of time, it would have been a very quick response time, which, again, is why it's those individuals who are most in danger, uh, who have the biggest need to be able to be armed, to in that immediate moment, be able to make that decision to, to defend themselves uh, in a way that, even, you know, even, even if there was armed security, if they're in a different part of the building, if they're not immediately on hand, that still doesn't do a whole lot for the individuals who are there in the moment. Because as you mentioned, all of this occurred roughly in the span of 16 seconds. You um, make reference to the morning after the shooting that CNN published an opinion article titled Don't Try to Sugarcoat the Horror of Jacksonville. And you took issue with some of the, the points that were being made. Can you, for the sake of our listeners who don't have a copy of your uh, column in front of them, uh, just talk us through a little bit of, of what was wrong with uh, some of the claims that were made there and some of the realities we have to acknowledge in order for the general public moving forward um, to have the opportunity and the right to protect themselves. Sure. So as you mentioned, I did take issue with a number of things in this article. I think the biggest one for me is that the, the author of this article uh, put Second Amendment rights uh, in scare quotes, as they're called, uh, which is you know kind of this um, editorial thing that people will do when they're uh, trying to make a point, as though something is not really a right that people have. Uh, and to me, that that's absurd. The Second Amendment doesn't protect, quote, you know, rights or fake rights, it protects rights, just like every other amendment to the Constitution. And so to kind of degrade the Second Amendment in, in that way, um, I really did take issue with, as well as the fact that he he tends to make these very emotional appeals while claiming that gun rights advocates um, you know, don't really make substantive arguments and that they're more interested in protecting their guns. But at the same time, I think it's important to realize that people 
who are advocates of the Second Amendment, it's not that we want to protect our guns. It is that we want our guns in order to protect ourselves, namely uh, from instances of the evil that we see in Jacksonville. You write that our our reality is that evil exists, that human beings hurt each other from the very beginning when Cain smote Abel in a jealous rage to last Sunday afternoon with a similar rage and a deadlier weapon. Human beings hurt each other despite our laws, despite our precautions, despite our best intentions. Evil exists and human beings hurt each other. We must embrace this reality and then we must ad- adequately account for it. Uh, and you point out the fact that uh, very little uh, very rarely referenced, and that is that roughly 100 million Americans have chosen uh, to account for the existence of evil by arming themselves against it, and that uh, between 500,000 and 3 million times uh, lawful defense of life and property uh, takes place in America. That, that's right. And, and this is actually, as I note in the article, the, the one instance where I really do agree with the author of the CNN article is that we do have this reality of suffering uh, and, and of evil, and we tend to shy away from it. Uh, but the, the way that I view it is we absolutely should, as the author of the CNN article insinuates, we should embrace that. This isn't something we should shy away from. The reality is that we are dealing with broken human beings in a broken world full of sin who are prone from the very beginning and continuing on until the Lord comes back, they're prone to hurting each other. And this is a reality we have to account for, and it's a reality that the Second Amendment accounts for in giving individuals the right to keep and bear arms, uh, both against tyranny on a grand scale and against crime on a more individual scale. And that is a reality that that millions of Americans, upward of almost 100 million Americans, have, have chosen to defend themselves against lawfully. Uh, and for many individuals in, in many situations, it is the only real defense that they will have um, other than being unarmed against evil. Well, I appreciate uh, your writing in the column. We'll make it available to our listeners if they'd like to uh, read it as well. And thank you for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. A lot to a lot to think about. Amy Swear is a legal policy analyst at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ. And we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, a senior Facebook engineer called out what he termed the company's political monoculture. In an internal message board post prompting over 100 fellow employees to join a group advocating for political diversity, you know, political diversity, not just the superficial kind, the, the way we differ in terms of how we look. Well, the group represents less than half a percent of the social media giant's workforce and members aren't necessarily even conservative, but they say they're fed up with the way co-workers who don't toe the liberal line are treated. We are a political monoculture that's intolerant of different views. Brian uh, Amaridge, a senior Facebook engineer, wrote on the 20th of this month in a post titled, We Have a Problem with Political Diversity, that was leaked to the New York Times. We claim to welcome all perspectives, but are quick to attack, often in mobs, anyone who presents a view that appears to be 
in opposition to left-leaning ideology. Well, since the post went up, over 100 employees have joined a group called um, FBers for Political Diversity. And although other Facebook employees reportedly complain that the group's online posts are offensive to minorities, a source with knowledge of the situation, say the group's intent is to be a constructive space and includes people on the left and the right. Well, Facebook employs roughly 25,000 people and like most Silicon Valley companies, it's seen as having a liberal culture. In May, the company announced that former Arizona Senator John Kyle, a Republican, would lead an inquiry into allegations of anti-conservative bias at the social network. Well, the memo cites a range of concerns, including the removal of posters welcoming supporters of President Trump, the efforts to get Trump supporter Peter Thiel removed from Facebook's board, and uh, the fact that all lives matter is a, a fireable offense. Um, the individual who started this movement himself being called a transphobe for calling Facebook's corporate art politically radical. Wow. Well, a source familiar with the incident said that Facebook's culture is open and that employees are encouraged to communicate freely in any of the tens of thousands of internal groups, except maybe this one. On day one of Facebook's new hire orientation in Menlo Park, everyone hears from our chief uh, diversity officer about the importance of diversity and how to be respectful in conversations with people who have different viewpoints. Bertie Thomas, a Facebook spokesman, uh, says, however, that doesn't seem to be the case, at least according to these employees. We'll continue to follow the story to see whether or not they are welcomed into this broad minded coalition of um, of thinkers. Well, for more more than 50 years, rather, Americans have been confused about the issue of prayer in school and students' rights to pray in school. Congress never passed any law that prohibits prayer or the free exercise of religion, as stated in the U.S. Constitution's First Amendment. Congress shall make no law establishing religion or deny the free exercise thereof. They can't establish your religion, but they cannot deny the free exercise of one's religion. Well, the Supreme Court of these United States rulings and subsequent media reporting in uh, recent years confused school administrators, students, and the general public on the subject. The Supreme Court makes no laws and has never ruled, although the Supreme Court doesn't make law, they simply interpret it, but they've never ruled limiting prayer by students or anyone in school. There are some cases one might look to. Uh, Engel versus Vital, uh, the... Uh, uh, they ruled that teachers and administrators may not lead, coerce, or force students to pray. However, these rulings have nothing to do with a student's right to free speech and the individual and group prayer initiated by students. The 1962 New York Times headline read, Supreme Court Outlaws Official School Prayers. Well, the word official was key in that headline, which is often referred to, not explaining that students have a right to pray. Well, students and teachers are free to pray at their desk with friends, coworkers, classmates during free time at lunch, sports activities and special events, provided it doesn't interfere with normal class or school activities and lessons. Well, a growing co- coalition of American citizens, leaders, historians, educators, celebrities, government officials, Children's advocates, media moguls are teaming up and have been since the 13th of this month to remind all Americans and especially students that it is legal to pray in school. 
Um, this back to school truth campaign is endorsed by many nonprofit organizations, legal teams and parents, as well as student groups. Brad Dacus, the president of Pacific Justice Institute, who has an army of free lawyers and legal counsel, said in every case defending students rights to pray, the students have prevailed. Even teachers have the right to pray in school. Bill Federer, with the Ameri- who is an American historian and president of uh, the American Minute and uh, who is also a prolific author, speaker and radio uh, commentator, said President Ronald Reagan said the Constitution was never meant to prevent people from praying. Its declared purpose was to protect their freedom to pray. Well, this uh, campaign is uh, currently underway, and uh, you may have the opportunity to hear comments on radio, to Internet media, Twitter, email, text, Instagram. You can find out more about the effort at LegalToPray.com. You can post uh, images to your Facebook page making the point, uh, the point, and I would encourage you to do so. We've done that on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page. By the way, a coalition of uh, uh, legal groups uh, partnering in this effort include the ACLJ, American Minute, um, Advocates for, oh, I can't even read this, uh, for Faith and Freedom, uh, Helping Public Schools, Alliance Defending Freedom, the Rutherford Institute, among others, to just give you some perspective on this effort. It's legal to pray in school. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Wayne Grudem. He is the author of a very thick book titled Christian Ethics, An Introduction to Biblical Moral Reason. And how how many pages would you say is in this book, James? Like five or six, maybe 800 pages. It's perhaps the thickest book we've ever been sent here on the Georgine Rice Show. Uh, and it is an introduction to biblical moral reasoning, but it's a great uh, work to have a, a better understanding of Christian ethics, or perhaps another way of putting that, biblical ethics. We're going to talk with uh, Wayne Grodem about that when he joins us uh, tomorrow on the program. Also, if you didn't have the opportunity to uh, listen in earlier in the program, we talked with Mary Lowe. She's the co-author of Ecologies of Faith in a Digital Age, Spiritual Growth Through Online Education. If you have uh, been concerned about the prospect of online education and whether or not Um, This allows you to connect with other students. If you lose something, particularly when you're talking about spiritual formation in the context of Christian education, uh, we had the opportunity to talk about uh, the new technologies that have really done away with some of the impediments that were in place at the beginning of digital education or online education uh, from a, a Christian perspective, whether that's seminary or uh, Christian colleges and universities. So you can uh, listen to that at kpdq.com. Look for the, um, the um, James, I've just forgotten the word. You can go to the, to listen to the, the interview. You can go to, isn't that ridiculous? I've just completely, the, the podcast. You can go to the podcast. Maybe I need a, a right. I said that part. Of course, you, you weren't listening, of course, but um, podcast. Podcast is what I couldn't remember. I need to get some tattoos, just, you know, words that I tend to forget. And then I'll have them removed once I'm finished here. But, you know, for now, maybe just a permanent marker would do the trick. Podcast. All right. Thank you for your timely assistance in this matter. I want to thank uh, James Blend, who is the engineer and producer of today's program, which means he helps put all the stuff together and is the technical guru behind the program, actually. Uh, running. And I want to thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Hope you have a great evening. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.